Welcome to the Global Franchise Podcast, intimate conversations with some of the most exciting decision makers in the world of franchising to help you and your business adapt to unprecedented change in our industry. I'm Kieran McLoone, Deputy Editor for Global Franchise Magazine. This episode of the Global Franchise Podcast is brought to you by FranchiseReorg.com, powered by Suma Franchise Consulting and Alexius Solutions, providing consulting and reorganization services to franchisors. While franchising can sometimes be seen as a holistically positive um, thing for a community, concepts are rarely as intentionally helpful and charitable as just between friends. Co-founded by Shannon Wilburn and Davin Tackett in 2004, the franchise hosts several bi-yearly sales that allow parents to buy and sell children's goods, maternity clothing, and other essential items for families. With retail prices at Just Between Friends consignment sale often being 50 to 90% cheaper than store-bought goods, and the brand's commitment to charitable donations, which have now surpassed uh, $28 million, we wanted to unpack exactly how this savings-driven approach works. In this episode, we talk with Shannon about her, her journey from hosting a small sale in her kitchen to becoming the CEO of a nationwide franchise network. Hi, Shannon. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing good. Thank you. Good to hear. The first thing then, I suppose, if you could just kind of uh, introduce the the brand and sort of your journey with it, because starting with that initial sale you put on in 1997, you then, is it franchise, uh, started franchising rather in 2004, and you're now at 160 locations across the US? Yes, that's correct. So what did that kind of look like? Yeah, sure. Thank you, first off, for having me on the on the show. Really um, ex- I'm excited about this. Um, of course, I think most CEOs love talking about their brand. So, and I am no, I am no different. Um, mm. But I, I love the direction where we're going to go today. Um, so, I have to take you back to when I was 12 years old. My, uh, my dad, who was CFO of an oil and gas company uh, at the time, um, went. He he started having some symptoms um, and was in the span of about six weeks was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And he went from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair very quickly and went on disability insurance. And so as a 12 year old, my dad was 33. um, You know, we're headed into middle school and fashion is part of popularity. Mm. Um, We, we went from being uh, just a pretty well off family to my mom who didn't finish college went to work and that was our that was our income and so our lifestyle changed significantly we we moved from a brand new custom home with two brand new cars in the driveway to um to a rental house and then my sister and I I have a twin sister we were put on a clothing budget and so this was my first introduction into the world of consignment Um, At the age of 12, uh, we just, my dad said, here's your clothing budget. You can use it all in January or you can make it last till December. But once it's gone, it's gone. And it wasn't much. And so we had to learn to stretch a dollar at the age of 12. Well, that served me well because I went, went and found consignment and started getting my fashion through gently used items back in the, back in the eighties. And uh, so grew up high school, went to college, married um, my husband, Mitch, in 1990. So we've been married 30 years next month. And um, he uh, was a youth minister at the time, which is not 
um, a vow of poverty, but kind of. Mm. <laughs> um, and so when we got married, I just continued shopping consignment. Then we had kids. I shopped consignment for them. And my degree is elementary education. So um, I was a school teacher and not making a lot of money myself, um, but just wanted to be able to stay home with my kids. So that is where Just Between Friends came into um, existence is it was a way for me to try to make ends meet while I was staying home. And so I reached out to a friend of mine from church and said, hey, um, I have this idea, which my mom gave me, by the way, to start this event-based business here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, in my living room. Let's convince a few of our friends to bring us their gently used children's and maternity clothes, toys, and baby equipment, and then we'll open it up to people to shop. And we knew it, we knew it, we didn't want it to be a garage sale where people had to rummage through junk. Mm. And so we only said, you know, bring us your best, no stains, no rips, no tears, uh, that type of thing. So we had the first event in my living room, which is not big. And, um, had 17 families participate as sellers, consigners. And then we had shoppers come. And it was funny because someone tried to buy my couch. Uh, We used the the kitchen drawers as as cash registers. And um, we sold $2,000 worth of merchandise. That was the very first sale in 1997. Right, okay. And um, I had a one-year-old and a two-year-old at the time. And... um, when we were done with that event, Devin had made $150 and I had made $150. And I think that was the hardest $150 I've ever made. (laughs) So we learned what we learned a lot of what not to do at that first event. And um, we, we continued hosting an event in Tulsa and it grew significantly over a six year span to where we went from my living room to the local fairgrounds And it was really an act of faith to make that move uh, because it was just a huge move and expensive. But once we got to the fairgrounds, it was like people knew that they were coming to a good event that was well managed. And so we started um, helping other um, people do this in other in other states and cities because they would see the Just Between Friends event, which I think I think, you know, the very first sale we did 2000 when we moved to the um, fairgrounds. I think we were doing maybe 25,000 per event. And when we started franchising the business, I think we were up to about $180,000 in sales in, in, you know, six days, (laughs) um, two times a year. Um, and so other people were seeing that this was a successful model, um, and started reaching out to us to say, Hey, we want to start this. So 2003, um, we decided to start looking into, and that's a, it's a much longer story than I'm telling you. I'm trying to give you the highlights, but, um, we started franchising in the end of 2003, we got our FDD together, um, and got our attorney and, you know, started putting our operations manual together. Um, and then we started selling franchises in 2004. And because we had helped people get started before we started franchising, um, in states like California, Florida, Texas, and Colorado, we had 10 franchise owners when we started and we called them our charter members because they were doing it before we actually franchised, but we had let them use our name. Um, and so we had proven mm. the concept. Again, my elementary education degree did not teach me that that's what we were doing, but that's what we were doing. So, um, you know, I feel really, really blessed that we had other people 
doing Just Between Friends around the country because they became our validators. Again, I didn't know what a validator was in franchising, but when someone was looking at the franchise, we would say, well, call this person or call this person. And they would validate that it was profitable. It wasn't easy, but it was doable. So that's kind of how yeah. we got started. And, and um, we grew the Tulsa business um, as 50-50 partners for um, 14 years. Um, and then we grew the the franchise system as 50-50 partners for seven years. So seven years we did both together. And in 2011, we reorganized the company because it was it was a lot to grow the Tulsa business and grow the franchise system and have any type of focus. So um, in 2011, Tulsa was doing over $700,000 in sales in seven days. And um, we had sold, I think we were to maybe, maybe 100 franchises at that time. Uh, So we decided to reorganize and I became the CEO of the franchise system. And my business partner, Devin, became the sole franchise owner for the Tulsa business. So that's kind of our story. Yeah, no, it's really great. Thanks for the uh, for the deep dive. Um, I mentioned up top that the brand to date has donated both in cash donations and in kind donations to charities over, is it over 28 million by this point? Yes. Um, and I suppose for some of our listeners who may not be aware of how the consignment sale um, model that you run is both, you know, beneficial to franchisees, but also the communities that it, the sales operate within. Could you kind of give us a, a bit of a rundown on how that works and how you managed to reach that number? Yes, absolutely. So um, back when we were at a church location before the Tulsa sale had moved to the big fairgrounds here in Tulsa, we didn't really know what to do with the unsold items because the concept is basically families prepare their own items at their own house. And when it's time for the event, we have what we call drop-off days. So families drop off their items over the span of one or two days. It gets inspected, goes on the sales floor, very organized like a department store would be. And then we open up to host the event to anyone who wants to come shop. Uh, Once the event is over, because it's a limited amount of time, we have to sort the unsold items back into the seller number or consigner number. And what we found was that we were doing the sorting and not everyone would come pick up their items. And so we were like, well, we don't need to sort it. If if people don't want to come pick up their items. Uh, But I was always, I always knew there was value in those items. Um, And so for the, for the first, you know, three years or so, we, um, we went ahead and, kept the items in my garage and just would say, Hey, come pick up your items and people wouldn't come. So we figured out that there was people who just didn't want the items that didn't sell. And so um, when we were at this church location, we saw a gal that was um, going through the items on our half price day. So every franchise has a half price day at the end of their sale where the items that are um, normally full price would go half price. If, if the, family that was selling them wanted them to go half price. And um, the gal was walking around 
picking up all of these newborn items. Um, I mean, tons, <laughs> like, like a lot. And I, and I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm picking up items to go to the charity that I'm a part of. And I said, tell me about this charity. And she said, what do you do with your, all these unsold items? I said, well, it's an issue uh, because some people don't want to come pick them up. She said, we'll take them. So this was not a strategic move on our part to partner with a nonprofit, but before we franchised, it became a major por- portion of our um, of what we did because it was a service to the families and and everyone feels good when they are able to give back. Um, and so we started uh, telling the families, if you don't pick up your items by this time on the last day of the event, then they will get donated. So, you know, it's like, if you don't come by 8 PM, the donation truck comes at 801, it'll be too late. <laughs> and, you know, we, uh, and then we're like, and won't you feel good about donating? So most people were thrilled about that option because they didn't want to come pick up their unsold items. They, they wanted to sell what they could and they didn't want it back in their house. And so probably system wide now. So when we, when we started franchising, we made that part of the, the operational aspect of the business is that you have to partner with a local nonprofit and boy, it, I mean, it is a culture um, shift. I feel like it, Now we attract, so we've been franchising now for 16 years. We attract people who have this mindset of giving back. And so it it has become even a bigger, um, I guess, initiative (laughs) with, with just between friends over the last few years, especially. So you know, for, for several years, franchise owners partnered with local nonprofits and we knew they were partnering with local nonprofits and we would hear stories and we, uh, you know, it just, it just made you feel good, but we weren't really measuring the impact. Um, and so we, and I think it was maybe four years ago, we made it one of our initiatives, our strategic initiatives to start measuring the, um, the giving back aspect of just between friends, because I think there's, Part of just human nature is when you do something good, you don't want to tell people about it because it feels like bragging and it feels like you're doing something good to to get noticed. But the opposite side of that is when you do something good and you tell people about it, it inspires other people to do good. And so, um, so we started and I, my husband's a pastor now, the senior minister at our church in Tulsa, and he does this all the time. He, he tells stories of our members that are doing good things for other people. And it makes other people want to do good things, not for, not to be noticed, but to feel good. And, um, so we started something called a community impact award about four years ago, where we, elevated the giving back side of our business to the same level as the franchise of the year award. And so uh, we are two top awards for our franchise owners at our annual conference every year are our community impact award and our franchise of the year award. Um, And so it's been really fun to see some cool stories come through. Um, and, And this business in and of itself is it just you see a lot of need 
because it's it's families who can't afford to pay retail for their children's items. And so I'll tell you a quick story. Um, the last time that I worked at the cash register when I was an owner of the Tulsa uh, a franchise back in 2011. It was the half price day. So sometimes you have a little bit of a different crowd of people who come on the half price day. So it's it's families who um, really, really need to save money. So they 50 to 90 percent isn't enough savings. They need to save 50 percent off of 50 to 90 percent off. And so if you can get some really, really great deals. So I was working the cash register that um, that day and I had a gal come through the line and she um, she seemed to be a teenager, maybe 16 or 17 years old. There was no mom with her, no grandmother with her, no boyfriend, no husband. And she looked to be about eight months pregnant. And she had four items um, all in Ziploc bags, a bag of uh, cloth diapers, a bag of onesies, a bag of bottles, and a bag of something else that would be core to raising a child. And uh, I rang her up and on half price day, her total for those four items came to $10 and 80 cents. And she looked at me when I said, that'll be $10 and 80 cents. She looked at me and then she looked down kind of with some shame. And she said, Oh, I didn't know you charge tax. And she was looking at those four items to try and decide what item of those essential items that she was going to have to put back. And of course, I, I said, oh, don't worry about it and just gave the items to her. And then I went in the office and cried for 30 minutes because I thought, this is someone who wants to be able to provide for her child. And we are going to be there for her. And our franchise owners are going to be there for for, you know, you could have the doctor's wife, the attorney's wife that is shopping at Just Between Friends because they just want to save money. And you can have someone who the only way that they're going to be able to provide for their family is if they get it 90% off. It makes you want to do good things for good people. And that those type of stories happen all the time at JBF uh, because we have franchise owners that have that mindset and it's part of our culture, um, and we talk about it. Yeah, no, certainly, it's it's great to hear that it is so much more than just a business for you. You know, it is this um, genuine giving back initiative. Um, if we could talk a little bit more about your about the the JBF kind of franchisee network, um, I read that you the the network currently is made up of is it about ninety seven percent female franchisees? Yes, that's true. Do you is there kind of you know is there any reason behind that you think is that something by design or is there anything that has led to that? Well, I, I can give you my kind of opinion on that. Um, so my opinion is that it was women founded. And um, it's a, we kind of advertise it to people who are looking to purchase it as a part-time supplemental income business. Um, And so uh, at least here in the United States, lots of, uh, lots of families uh, see this separation of responsibilities many times. I don't know if this is old school, but um, it, it is how it is right now, um, where um, women are primary caregivers. And so when um, what I what I believe has happened is that 
when women have children, they're the primary caregivers. They are in charge of clothing their children, finding the clothes, finding the toys, um, and making sure that the children's needs are taken care of from that aspect. And so you have you have women also who many like me want to try and stay home and be the primary um, caregiver and raise their children and not pay someone to raise their children. So like me, back when my kids were little, I wanted to stay home. I didn't want to work outside the home um, in, a, in a job eight to five or nine to five or whatever. Um, and so I think we draw people um, once they have children they see what they're missing out on and uh, they want to find a way to help the family income, supplement the family income. They don't have to bring in a full-time salary, um, but they also are Hmm. getting the side benefit of also clothing their children while they're working on the side. So our average unit volume last year among our franchise owners was about 235,000. Um, annually. So that's 235,000 in sales. But what what is really cool about that, two things that are really cool is um, 60 to 70% of that money goes back into the hands of the families that brought the items, right? Because our franchise owner don't own most of the inventory. It's, it's you, if you have kids and you want to consign with us, you still own the inventory. We're just providing a marketplace for families to buy and sell it. And so, um, so our franchise owners then get that, um, 30 to 40%. That is what they run the event on. That is, um, where they market the business. Um, and, and hopefully there's money for them to take home, (laughs) but you can do, you can do the math that, um, you know, venues are expensive and marketing is expensive. Um, but it, we, we say you can make a full-time income, but really, if you want to make a full-time income from, you know, American United States standards, you probably need to operate more than one territory. Right. Okay. So we have, we have about 26 of our uh, franchise owners are multi-unit franchisees. So we've got, I think we have three franchisees that own four territories each. And then we have a lot of people that have two franchises uh, because it becomes more of a full-time job whenever you have two. But the great thing about it, again, is that it's super flexible. So when my kids were little, um, I needed to be communicating. This is back before social media, of course, but um, I needed to be communicating with my uh consigners and, you know, the people that were working at the event. So everything was done um, over email. Uh, Texting wasn't even, I I think texting came around maybe somewhere close to that, that time, but it was, it was just hard to communicate. So I would, I would find myself, you know, kids taking a nap and I would be working and then I'd get dinner ready and then I'd work when they were playing and then they'd go to bed and I'd work after they went to bed. And that's kind of, I think that um, because the flexibility of our concept, that is why it draws a lot of women. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Where you've got this really passionate, you know, empathetic network of franchisees, are there any ways that you as a franchisor kind of facilitate um, collaboration and cross promotion to really make that feel like a, a family as opposed to a load of individual locations? Wow. 
um, you know, when we first started, I told you we had 10 uh, women who had started their Just Between Friends in their own city, in their own state. Um, And I think just from the very beginning, we collaborated. And so we would pick up the phone and call each other and say, you know, how did you market? How did you, how did you, why was your sale that big? (laughs) Tell me what you did, you know? And um, so that was a part of our concept when we started franchising, just the sharing of information. And that is how it has continued. So when we started franchising, I don't know if you remember these Yahoo groups were a big thing uh, back in the early 2000s. And so that was kind of our first intranet, so to speak, was a way for people to communicate privately, uh, but with a big group. And so that was kind of what we did. Well, when Facebook came about, that has just been just this golden platform for business in general. Um, and the communication where you can have private groups. Um, so we have, gosh, we have, we have a large, our, all of our franchise owners are on a Facebook group. It's just called our communications Facebook group. And I mean, people can ask a question and within seconds you have, you know, four or five people that have given you an answer. Mm. Um, and it can be from any type of business issue. It could be about accounting or who did you use for payroll or you know, what did you do? I have a, I have a consigner that's not happy. This is what she said. How should I respond? Um, I mean, it is, it's gold. And we have such high engagement on that platform. And I really haven't had to, uh, I mean, we manage it from a corporate perspective where our staff, our support team, our executive team has access to that. And so if they have a higher level question, we're able to to jump in and, and give an answer. But mostly it's franchisee to franchisee. Um, then we also have our, um, we have some Facebook groups for different levels of franchise owners. So our, our franchise owners in their first year of ownership have a group. Then we have franchise owners that are doing under $50,000 per event. Then we have uh, branch, a group for franchise owners that, that have much larger events because they deal with different issues. So it's not like a brick and mortar where you have um, everyone doing about the same in revenue. Um because you might have someone who has just started their franchise and their first event, they're doing a $10,000 event. Then you have our number one franchise owner who had an event that was $660,000, you know? So it's, it's vastly different. It, the concept is the same, just the, the, the effort it takes to execute a larger event is, is vastly different. (laughs) Um, But we, we have, um, it's, we've got a, a gal in our system that was just diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and you, you were talking about franchise owners engaging with other franchise owners and, mm. um, kind of the litmus test for me is when they want to go help someone. So, um, this, this franchise owner, um, was going through chemo and still has radiation ahead of her, but her, she owns three franchises. So she's one of our multi-unit franchisee franchisees. And so she hosts six events a year, has um, two kids and is 38 years old or 36 and diagnosed with breast cancer. So she, um, she had a lot on her plate. Well, her event was coming up, but her chemo was scheduled. And, and with the coronavirus, you, they, she can't, even if she felt good, she couldn't go to her event because she didn't want her immune system is so low 
that she didn't want that to be an issue. And so Mm. unbeknownst to me, I only found this out after the fact she had like six or seven franchise owners reach out to her and say, Hey, I'll fly to your event and run your event for you. Wow. That's quite an offer really, isn't it? Yes. It's huge. Yeah. Cause it's not a small feat and, and she's a top achiever. So her events are not small. Mm. And, um, but that just, to me, that's a, that's a good litmus test. And, um, of course I don't want to paint the picture in franchising that this happens all the time, but I don't know if it's that we draw, um, just people with big hearts to our concept, just based on the type of concept it is. It's a, it's a business that helps people. Um, but we have a lot of big hearted franchise owners. I'm sure most brands have that as well. Yeah, no, that's, as you say, that is like the, the ultimate, I guess, um, example of the kind of franchisees that a, a brand could strive for. Um, yes. You'd mentioned the coronavirus, which is very much the, the hot topic still at the moment uh, all around the yes. world. Um, but where your, your brand is, I suppose, a retail um, operation, how have you been impacted by COVID-19? You know, have these sales been able to continue? Have, is, uh, what's, what's kind of been the navigation route for you? Yeah, so um, not only are we retail, but we're event-based. Mm. So, um, you know, events aren't happening <laughs> at the moment. So we have had some, you know, it, it's been a difficult road like it has for most business right now. So I don't, I don't want to paint it um, too horrible, but it feels um, I'm very hopeful, I will say, but I'm an irrationally positive person. So (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, I think you need to be at the moment, really. (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. Um, We had, you know, we, we should have at least 160 events in the spring and 160 events in the fall. That's kind of our, by contract, you're supposed to have two events per year. We do have some franchises that have three events per year and some that have four events per year. When the coronavirus hit, you know, the United States, it started in Washington and California. And um, we had had our, our sales season is typically Some franchise owners have February sales. Most franchise owners have events in March and April. And then when it comes to the fall, September and October are are our largest months. And so we were headed into sales season and we had 29 events that had their events before the coronavirus affected us. And we had five events that were happening that got shut down mid-sale. And so then we had 126, if I'm doing the math right, that were looking at me like there went half my income. Because when you're only open two times a year, you make your revenue once in the spring and once in the fall. And um, so we we basically went to our franchise owners and said, um, you know, there's based on our FDD, we've got certain provisions in our FDD that if you don't have an event there, you have to pay a certain amount. It's kind of like a a missed sale fee is what we call it. Um, Because we're not brick and mortar open all year long, we do have things that come up where franchise owners sometimes are unable to host an event like hurricanes and, you know, natural disasters, that type of stuff. And the coronavirus. So, oh gosh. So we, um, 
we started working through that uh, with our franchise owners. And um, it was a heavy lift in March and April, but we put together a task force. Our training and support and our marketing department is just, they're phenomenal. I mean, I, I look back and I'm like, we would not have been able to survive if we did not have this, this amazing training and support team and this amazing marketing department because they got their heads together along with, we put 24 franchise owners on a task force to say, basically, how are we going to survive this? What do we need to do to uh, make it through this? And see some type of revenue. So um, the franchise owners, we had piloted online sales um, mm. previously, but not to the extent. I think um, I think we have 60 of our franchise owners that decided to pilot online sales. And we had four, four different methods of how we could pivot to, um, to try to meet the needs of the people in the communities where we have franchise owners, because that need did not go away. The need sure, to yeah. save money on our children's items is there and it's bigger than ever. I mean, unemployment um, at the time, just significant um, still. I mean, we're, we have uh, like 11 million in unemployment in June, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and it's um, so it's it's the need is still there. So we went ahead and. Um, had several of our franchise owners kind of uh, walk through the process of doing online sales. And so we have lots of our franchise owners that are meeting the need on a day-to-day basis with their online, their online store. Um, Mm. So, and and we, we had four different versions of that. So that was kind of our, uh, the way we got around it. And then when things started opening back up, franchise, we had about 40 franchise owners that said, okay, I felt like my venues closed, the, the venue that I normally use, they're using that for coronavirus, more beds for the coronavirus, or the, the county's taking that over for coronavirus testing or whatever. Um, so I'm going to look for a retail location. So we have had this huge shift from fairgrounds and convention centers, that type of stuff to empty retail. So like a closed Best Buy or, you know, do y'all have the Halloween concepts? Have you heard of that? The Halloween store concepts where they, I think we've got similar kind of costume stores and things like that. Yeah. So they come in for two months right before Halloween and rent an empty retail space and, but aren't there all the time. That's kind of what our franchise owners have been doing and just being very, very, very creative in how they meet the needs of the public. And I've been just so proud of, of our franchise owners. So we had about 40 that signed up to do an actual event for spring. It just wasn't in March and April. It's been in June and July. So um, yeah, but we're, we're having to have those same conversations headed into fall because um, I had a meeting with um, some of my support team yesterday um, and the, the venues are here we go again through this kind of second wave of we're not going to open yet or, you know, states banning how many people can be in the building at one time. Uh, I mean, we've got our franchise owners have gotten so creative in trying to work around. I tell I tell our franchise owners when they're in the process of applying to become a franchisee, you know, some of our best franchise owners are huge problem solvers. So they see an mm. issue coming and they can think of five ways or five ways around it. And you have to think in the moment with our franchise because we're doing half our business in seven days in the spring. Well, if your internet goes down, 
you have to have a backup plan because you can't wait till tomorrow to get the internet working again. <laughs> you because then there goes your sales for one of your five days. So yeah. it's um, you know, our best franchise owners can can problem solve around anything. So and we put our heads together, had uh, these task forces going to help us. We had a task force for our PPE equipment. How do we source that? Um, and the franchise owners, I mean, I have amazing franchise owners. I'm sure every brand says that, but um, I really do. Yeah. So it's still very much a, a work in progress, but looking forward to the fall then, are you, do you know, what's kind of the, the main direction, I guess, with the brand? Is it looking more to those online sales or is it just kind of playing as it, as, as it comes at the minute? Um, right now, um, I've got a, I actually have a, um, a meeting next week to talk about this because right. we were, we were hoping this wasn't going to happen, but, um, we are, there are already, there are already, I think we already have maybe 14 franchise owners that their venue has canceled on them. So they either have to find retail space, but the, the, the online sales is a great additional revenue stream to an event. But it doesn't. You do, you can't have the volume. Sure, so you yeah. doing doing. Um, if if an average franchise owner does an event that's one hundred and ten thousand dollars or one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars, it's going to take you know probably six months to get that type of revenue. So working day in day out on the online. So yes, you can do it. It's a lot harder. and it's not what the franchise owner signed up for it's good for an interim to meet the needs of the the people who need it the most um but it is it's a lot more work yeah say say the franchise owners so (laughs) (laughs) so uh, something else i wanted to speak to you about sharon is um obviously the the brand itself is very um very giving focus, you know, very charitable, but also within your personal life, I read that you had donated a kidney to um, a member of your your husband's congregation. Yes. Um, and I just wondered if you'd be able to kind of talk a little about that experience and and whether your, you know, your lifelong, I guess, um, immersion in this world of charity and within giving has had any contribution towards that and how it kind of, I guess, I don't want to say, you know, obviously that you're position as run founder of this brand has caused that or let one thing led to another but um how are those kind of worlds connected yeah so um the story i mean the story of the kidney donation is um <laughs> it's crazy um i didn't want to do it but i felt like the lord was calling me to do it and and right. not um not in a small way like i um, you know, I'm a Christian. And um, so hearing, hearing the Lord say, Shannon, it's you when it's announced from the church pulpit, like hearing it, like Shannon, it's you and me going, what the heck? Mm. Like, I wonder who else heard that. And um, looking around, honestly, to I know this sounds so weird. So I mean, I, I kind of hesitate to even tell the story because I don't want it to discredit um, you know, me, but that's what happened. Um, I heard in my spirit, right, it's yeah. you, Shannon. And I was like, I don't even know this person. Why would I donate my kidney? I've had nine surgeries already in my life. There's no reason I need to donate a kidney and absolutely not. And that was, I thought, you know, <laughs> questioning, did I hear the Lord right on this? Well, what happened was, um, yeah. just continued to get confirmation after confirmation after confirmation 
month after month after month. And um, I mean, just weird stuff that would happen that would say, Shannon, it's you. And so I, I wasn't even praying about it. I wasn't even considering it. Basically, being disobedient to the Lord is what I was doing. And about at the year mark, so a year after I heard, it's you, Shannon, I, I had a series of things happen. And again, I don't want to get too deep into the story, but it was it was enough to make me say, I had better look into this. And um, hmm. and I was like, I know I'm going to be a match because the Lord would not leave me or alone about this. And so the biggest thing you do when you donate, a, when you want to donate a kidney or when you don't want to donate a kidney <laughs> um, <laughs> um, is you have to have this thing called the cross match test and it's, it's blood work. And I mean, there's a lot of steps you have to go through when you donate a kidney, they have to make sure you're completely healthy before you do it. And I was like, okay, um, I got to do this blood work and it's going to tell me if we're a match and kind of a little bit of a background story that the gentleman that I donated the kidney to had already had his brother's kidney for 30 years and um, it was finally failing. And he had had some type of kidney disease when he was in his uh, 20s or um, or 30s, maybe. Anyway, um, he had all these antibodies where his nephrologist had said, basically, you're not going to find a donor. You're, six people had tried before me. And because of these antibodies, um, it was just kind of a one in a million chance. And I'm like, I know I'm going to be a match because the Lord has not left me alone about this for a year. And so I go to have the cross match test. And of course, I'm a match. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I knew I was going to be because the Lord told me I was. So um you know, right. I look at, I, I I want to say it's because Shannon Wilburn has such a charitable, she's so giving, you know, that's not the case. I really, I didn't want to do it. Um, but then when I found out I was a cross mat, I, we had the cross match test done and I was a match. It changed, it changed. Why a 66 year old man? Like why, if you're going to have me donate my kidney, why not to someone who's 30 and has a lot of life left? Right. And, um, but I wasn't going to ask that question because how rude, you know, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to say that out loud. <laughs> and um, one day I was talking to the recipient and he said, Shannon, this was before we did the, we were finally had the, the surgery. He said, Shannon, he was like, I feel like Hezekiah in the Bible, just asking the Lord for a few more years, a few more years. And he said, I want to see my grandchildren come to know and love the Lord. And I was like, okay, he has, I think he has six or seven grandchildren. And I'm like, that's why, that's why. And yeah. it, that made me just want to make it happen. And it's been two and a half years now since we, I did the donation in December of 2017 and he's healthy. I'm completely healthy. I mean, it has been just this wonderful thing that I got to do. I didn't have to do it. Like the Lord chose me to help save his life. And it, it, it feels really good. <laughs> um, I don't know that that came about because of just between friends. I think the, the culture of our company the giving back aspect didn't hurt that, you know, because I'm in, I yeah. live and breathe that every day, the giving back aspect. So I'm sure that that had 
you know, that sits on my heart. I think maybe the bigger, the bigger draw for a kidney donation or just helping people in general is that my dad was disabled for 17 years before he died at the age of 49. And um, if, if, if he would have needed a kidney, I would have, I would have certainly given it to him. And if I wasn't a match, I, you can, you can bet your bottom dollar that I would be out there advertising. My dad needs a kidney. And, um, it feels, Hmm. um, for, for kidney recipients in general, anyone who needs a kidney, anyone who's on kidney dialysis there, they have to decide if they want to ask. It's called the big ask with kid, with kidney patients, uh, because many times for someone to get a kidney, unless they have a living donor like me, someone has to die for them to get their kidney. And so it's, it's that same thing. It's like, well, yes, I, I need a kidney, but I'm not going to ask anyone for it because, because something might go wrong. And then I would never forgive myself. So, so, so many kidney recipients don't make the ask. They just deal with it. They go to dialysis every day. Their life is basically you're tied to your town and you're tied to your dialysis. And it's very, um, Hmm. there's so much we can do as a society to help that particular issue. And it's people getting checked to see if they would be a match. They, you don't even have to have someone who you would be a match to. You go into this database, uh, your blood type that, and if you want to be a, um, a kidney donor, they will find someone. It's they have this cool matching program where, like, if you give your kidney, um, first off, you don't pay a dime as a donor. I, I had these medical bills. Right. All of that was taken care of. Um, that's something our government did well <laughs> in in um, America, at least. So um, it's I don't know. I just you only need one kidney to survive, and so it's been fun to be a part of. Thank you for asking me about it. Yeah, no, thank you very much for, for sharing such a, you know, a personal story. I know we are talking about just between friends, but I felt like it was it was part of, you know, it is quite a big part of the story as a whole, if not specifically brand related. Um, the last thing I would speak with you about, Shannon, if we get a little bit, I suppose, back onto franchising is, um, is I saw that currently just between friends only runs in the US. And I imagine your kind of, you know, expansion plans might have been slightly impacted by um by COVID-19 this year but I was just wondering whether looking ahead you know maybe next year or even throughout the course of the the decade we've recently entered um whether you see the brand heading internationally yeah so we in the past we have tried to do international franchising we we tipped our dipped our toe into Canada and um you know I we did lots of research before we tried to take the brand internationally and um, it's a, it's an expensive endeavor and Mm. it's not something that um, this particular time we did it, you know how you do something and then you learn what not to do and things that you didn't know. That was kind of our experience in Canada. It's like, okay, if we're going to do that, we have to have a, focus, a singular focus on growing the brand in Canada. And right now, we still have so much growth to happen here domestically, that that's our current focus. But I will, I, 
I, I know that the need is great in many other countries, and I have several franchisor friends who um, have su- successfully taken their brands internationally, uh, but I also know the work and effort and money that it's going to take to do that, and right now, our team doesn't have the, the um, I guess, the resources to make that happen right now, but absolutely, yes, I would love to have an international brand. Um, uh, I think the need for children's and maternity clothes, toys, and baby equipment is a need no matter what country you're in. And yeah. providing it at significant discount uh, off of retail is going to stay a need. Um, and we feel like this concept would work in most other countries. Um, it's just having the, the financial wherewithal to make it happen. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I suppose at the minute as well, you're kind of consolidating your current network. But um, it's good to hear that eventually, you know, it is something that might come down the line just when it's appropriate to do so. Yes, I would need yeah. some, some great master franchise owners. So, <laughs> Right. Okay, that's great yeah. to hear. Um, all right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Shannon. It's been really great chatting with you both about the brand and also your your personal experience. So yeah, looking forward to seeing, um, seeing what happens next with Just Between Friends. Karen, thank you for having me on the podcast today. I've, I love talking about the brand and about the giving back aspect. So thank you for giving me this platform. Sure thing. No worries. It was refreshing to speak with the founder of a concept largely unlike one we've covered on the podcast previously. Um, The Just Between Friends model isn't set up as a one-way ticket to fortune, but instead it seems to appeal to a a really empathetic kind of franchisee who wants to make a, a genuinely positive impact within their community. And Shannon's journey from her original home base sale to this vast franchise network was really great to hear. Um, the brand's methods of navigating COVID-19 showcased a lot of adaptation, which was which has become um, a real cornerstone of the franchise community as of late. Not only are those collaborative channels and Facebook pages that Shannon mentioned a potential lifesaver for some franchisees, but the holistically supportive feel of the entire Just Between Friends network seems like something a lot of brands should be striving for. We'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. How has your franchise network been supporting one another throughout the coronavirus crisis? Make sure to let us know. If you like the podcast, subscribe and recommend it to your friends and colleagues. Or even better, leave a review or a simple rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your pods. To keep up to date with franchise news and have it put into context by the global franchise experts, subscribe to the magazine, hit us up at globalfranchisemagazine.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn today.